You're listening to Awakening with Rabbi Ami Silver on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Ami as he shares from the wellsprings of Jewish spiritual teaching and practice and guides us on a path of healing, transformation, and awakening to experiencing the divine. We are rapidly approaching Lagva Omer, the greatest holiday that never was. The Chag, that's not a Chag. And yet the day that carries so much joy and hope and, and meaning for people, even though it's a question, what, what in the world does it mean? I want to spend some time today talking about Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai, the hero of Lagba Omer, the hero of the secrets of Torah, Lagba Omer, Vazara Kadosh. We'll spend some time with the story of Rabbi Shimon. His famous story of the cave, and this will be our entryway towards beginning to touch a little bit of what Lagvama might be about, and and what this day and this period of time might be for us. And before we even go into Rabbi Shimon himself, I just want to speak for a moment about Lagva Omer. As I said, it's a very strange thing. It's mysterious why this day is important, why this day came to be a holiday. And why this day is associated with Rabbi Shimon. So on the on, on the surface, the whole period of of Sphira, of Sphira Omer, that's come to be a time of mourning and grief. We don't take haircuts, we don't have weddings, we don't hold celebrations. The mourning of this time traces itself back to the death of the students of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, who is the greatest teacher of his generation, who said that all of Torah stands on the single principle you shall love your fellow, you should love another human being with the depth with which you love yourself. He was the Rebbe of 24,000 students who died during the period of Sfira, during the period of Pesach, and who died, the Gemar Nyevamov tells us, because lo nahagu kavod they were not able to, they did not manage to honor and respect God. And they were all killed in the terrible plague that happened during this period. Now, over the years and over the generations, as Jewish people, we've suffered many tragedies and losses during this time period. And so the reasons for mourning and grief have just expanded, but for some reason, at its core, this period seems to be a time of, of grief, of mourning. And the story of Rabbi Akiva's students, the tragedy of Rabbi Akiva's students, was ultimately, I don't know if deemed is the right word, but, but led to Rabbi Akiva carrying, passing his Torah to five students who were able to bear that torch, were able to carry it on and spread Torah, carry on and continue Torah throughout the world after really this entire school and, and, and leaders of, of Torah were, were decimated. And among those students is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And it strikes me that the teacher of love, Rabbi Akiva, the teacher of love from between people as the core principle of all of Torah, had 24,000 students who could not honor, who couldn't express and live that love between themselves could not love one another. As if they knew all the Torah in the world, but that core 
pillar upon all which all of it stood was lost on it. And I wonder if perhaps the students who Rabbi Kiva did then pass his Torah on to were among those who were able to carry on that teaching of love that stands at the core of the saint of the center. We look at the figure of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai today and, and, and bear that Christian in mind. Now, the story, the famous story of Rabbi Shimon in the cave shows up in a number of places, and we'll focus on the Gemara and Shabbos, Daflam and Gimel, Daflag 33. And, and we'll, we'll look at and, and bring in pieces of where, where the story appears elsewhere, it appears in, in the Midrash Rabbah, Breshit, and appears in, in the Gemara Yerushalmi, but in, in the Gemara of Shabbos, before we get to Rabbi Shimon's story, there is a conversation that's going on on the Chachamim. And just come with me, I'm inviting you with me here to, to enter into the words of Gemara that we might enter into the dream. You know, the, the Kubalim say that, that, that the Gemara is, is connected Olam Abriya. It's in a sense the, the mind of God. And and in a sense, if you've ever learned Gemara, it works more like a mind might work. There's a thought here, a statement here, a conversation here, a whole intense dialogue and negotiation that then all of a sudden shifts into some story that once happened that you remember that somebody said something to somebody, but actually it may have been another person who said it to somebody else. But regardless, it either went like this or maybe went like that, and it relates to what we were talking about somehow. But you don't always have to explain all the links there. And you're kind of a stream of consciousness of, of holy thinking you know, and of meditation on Torah. And, and these associations, these threads, are, are very valuable in terms of understanding the framing uh, around the, the content that's been discussed. So right before the story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that, that we get to, there's a discussion in the Gemara about Askara, about a, a kind of disease called Askara, which modern commentators translate as diphtheria. And Strangely enough, or ironically enough, Askara just happens to be the plague that befell the Akiva's students, that the Gemara Yavama talks about, that, that these 12,000 pairs of students, as the Gemara says, these 24,000 students died during this time, during the plague of Askara. And here in the Gemara Shabbos, the Chachamim are trying to understand what are the causes of this terrible plague of Askara. And one teaching is that Askara ba'al olam al that people failing to bring tithes, to give charity, to, to fulfill their duties, their civil duties by giving to, to the Mikdash, by supporting the, the society that they live in, that's a cause for us. Then Rabbi Elazar Bar Yossi says, Al-Lashon Hara. Askara comes on account of Lashon Hara. There's, there's other psukim that, that are brought to support this. Then the Gemara, a few lines later, says, Tashma come in here, Kshinich Nasu, Rabbi Tenu, the Karam, Bayavne, Hayasham, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon. When Ishalash Elazar Bifnehem, when the rabbis gathered in Yavne, a place where, in many ways, rabbinic Judaism was established after the destruction of the temple. So Rabbi Yehuda was there, and Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Yossi, who was the one who spoke about Lashon Hara just before, and Rabbi Shimon. And this question was asked, what? Why does this plague begin in the innards and end in the mouth? This plague of Oscar, of diphtheria, this kind of inner strangulation. Now, without getting into to their discussion there, let's just look at what's happening. We're talking about Oscar. We're talking about a potential cause of, 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 of evil speech, of, 
of, of speaking badly about, about others and spreading rumors, damaging words. And this people speaking here are Rabbi Lazar, son of Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yehuda, and Rabbi Shem. And then they come and they say that Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Eli, who's Rabbi Yehuda here, is called Rosh Medabrim. He's the first speaker always. So he responds to that question about, about Askarat. But then right away, the Gemara asks, why is he called Rosh Medabrim? Why is he called the first speaker? And this Gemara brings us right into another story. That once Rabbi Yehuda, the same first speaker, and Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Shimon, they were sitting together with Yehuda ben Gerim. Yehuda, the son of converts. Now you notice Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Shimon, some of these same names. The, up there was Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Yossi. Here it's actually Rabbi Yossi himself. But the, the Gemara is, is, is shifting smoothly from this one story into the other of Askara, of the rabbis discussing the causes of this plague, that plague that wiped out Rabbi Akiva's students. And now it's speaking about Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai and, and some of these other scholars. And here we enter the story that might be well-known and might not be. And even if it is well-known, it always warrants coming to know it again. Rabbi Yehuda, he opens, and he says, Speaking about the, the Romans who were in charge, and the empire in charge of the land of Israel at the time, how wonderful, how beautiful are the actions of this nation. Tiknu shvakim, they've built marketplaces. Tiknu gesharim, they've built bridges. Tiknu merchatzaot, they've built bathhouses. Look what they've done for our, for our, for our land, for our country, for our society. Rabbi Yossi heard these words. Shatak, he was silent in response. Na'ana Rabbi Shimon ban Yochai v'yamar. Rabbi Shimon ban Yochai answers. Koma shetiknu lo tiknu ela l'tzorach atzman. Everything that they built. Every advancement that they brought to our country, to our society, they've only done for their own purposes. They build marketplaces, to create a prostitution business. What are these bathhouses for? To, to give themselves luxury and, and leisure, to make them, to beautify themselves. Bridges, the bridges are there just to take more, more dues from us, more more tolls. They want to charge money and, and, and raise more money to just pump right into that same self-perpetuated society that they're building and imposing upon us. It's a self-serving mechanism. Yehuda ben Gerim, who was there, heard these words, and he went and he told the rabbi's words to the Malchut, to the Roman Empire. And they said, Yehuda, she'ilayit aleh. Remember, Yehuda's name is Yehuda bar Ilai, the, the ascended one. Yehuda, who elevated us, who praised us, let him be elevated. Yossi Shishatak, the one who, who was silent, he shall be banished and, and exiled to the town of Tzipori. Shimon, Rabbi Shimon, who disgraced us, Yehare, let him be killed. Rabbi Shimon and his son, they went and they hid in the Beit Midrash. Every single day, his wife would bring them water and bread and food. And they ate and they, they hid and took refuge there. As the decree intensified, the search for Rabbi Shimon built, he said to his son, it's possible that they're going to take advantage. The authorities will take advantage of, of your mother. Maybe they're going to they're gonna cause her to suffer and, and, and reveal where, where our hiding place is. Let's go hide somewhere else. They went and they hid in the cave. A miracle happened. 
and a carob tree was created for them, as well as a spring of water. They would sit there and remove all of their clothing and sit in sand up to their necks. All day long, they would repeat their learning in Torah, they would speak words of Torah. At the times of prayer, they would put their clothing on and pray, and then they would cast their clothes off again so that they would not wear out. They sat there for 12 years in the cave. The Navi, Elijah the prophet, came and stood at the opening of the cave and said, Who is going to let Bar Yochai know that the Caesar has died and the decree is over? Eliyahu doesn't say anything to them directly, you notice. Eliyahu just stands at the, at the gateway and, and, and speaks out, Who's going to let them know? Now, before we go on, I want to compare this a little bit to how the story is introduced in in the Gemara uh, in, in Midrash Rabbah, actually Midrash Breshid Rabbah in Parshat Vayishlach. In, in Vayishlach, in, in the Midrash, the Gemara doesn't tell a story of speaking badly about the Romans, of being tattled by, by another person, of hiding in the Bay Midrash, of being singled out specifically as somebody with a you know, warrant for their capture, but rather Rabbi Shimon and his son were hiding Biyome Dishmada. At the, t- at the time of, of, of terrible decrees, at a time of, of desolation, of shmad, of, of difficulty, they were hiding. General difficulty, general pain. And here too, they ate carobs, but these carobs weren't a miraculous carob tree. They were dried out carobs that caused their skin to crack and dry like rust. That's what, Kumar, that's what the Medrash here says. And whereas here in the Gemara Shabbos, it's 12 years. Here in the Midrash, he's there for 13 years with his son. And rather than Eliyahu Navi coming to ask this rhetorical question at the, at the entrance to the cave, we have Rabbi Shimon himself come to the opening of the cave. And he sees a bird hunter, a bird trapper up there. And he sees that whenever... There's a bird flying in the sky, and Rabbi Shimon hears a bat call, a voice from heaven, saying, Dimus, Dimus, which basically means, let it go, let it go, free. So the bird would fly away and not be caught. But whenever Rabbi Shimon heard a voice from heaven that said, Spekula, Spekula, which basically means, to death, to death, kind of sentence that a court would say, the bird was captured. And Rabbi Shimon thought to himself, if a bird only lives or dies in the hands of a decree from heaven. How much more so me? What am I doing hiding out here in a cave? Basically, heaven will decide whether or not I will live or die. And he comes out of the cave and then shortly after hears the murmurs around him that that the decrees have have, have calmed down and, and the threat is gone. So that's the backstory in the Midrash Rabbah. Let's come back here into, into the Gemara Shabbos at the end of 12 years. At the end of 12 years, Rabbi Shimon and his son Rabbi Lazar come out of the cave and they see people planting and working the fields. They say, These people are abandoning, they're leaving eternal life and they're involving themselves with temporal life, that comes and passes. This word sha'ah, really, the root of it has to do with turning, right? God didn't turn 
to the offering that Cain brought, Bill. Lo Sha'ah, an hour is by definition something that is passing. These people are involved with that which is passing, with a life that is passing, not with a life that is eternal. And what do they do? Everywhere that they would merely look, they would burn up, be caught in a, caught in a fire and burn. It almost sounds as if it's like an automatic thing that happens. They're not you know, channeling super laser beams to punish. It's just merely their eyes themselves, their vision themselves, their perspective themselves is, is consuming the world around them. That's Tabatko here in the Medjash Rabba, Rabbi Shimon heard a Here there's another Batko, a voice from heaven that comes and says, Did you come out to destroy my world? My world, which you in your cave, right? Rabbi Shimon and his son came out and said, these people aren't involved with chaye olam, with life of the world. They're involved with chaye sha'a, with passing existence. But this voice from heaven says, are you here to destroy my world? You think you know what life of a world is? This is my world. You're here to destroy my world? Return to your cave. So they return to their cave. Now it's their cave, as we'll see, not just any cave. They return, they sit there for 12 months, and they say to themselves, you know, the decree against wicked people in hell is maximum a 12-month sentence, meaning it must be time for us to, to come out again. And at once, Yetzirah Batkol, a voice from heaven, came out and said, The time has come for you to emerge from your cave. Go back to your cave. You're destroying my world. Come out of your cave. Come into my world. Nefaku, they come out. Everywhere that Rabbi Lazar struck, that he damaged, Rabbi Shimon would heal. He would mend. And here, before we go on, it's important to note that everywhere that this story appears, whether it's here in, in the Gemara Shabbos, whether it's in the Yushal Mishvis, whether it's in the Midrash Rabbah of Vayishlach, there is a context that it's all reverting, referring back to that we're about to see, which is the context of Yaakov Avinu arriving Shalem Yushchem Hayavo Yaakov Shalem Yushchem, if you recall. And here I told you we're going associative. If you recall, Yaakov from Prashat Vayishlach had the epic battle with the angel of Esau. The battle with that Ish in the middle of the night when he was all alone. And he came out of that battle limping. Right? He was he was injured in his in his in his hip area. And then he encounters Esau in the flesh. And they have their exchange and they hug and they kiss and there's some kind of amends, partially amends at least, that's made between them. And then Yaakov leaves. And it says at that point he comes shalem to the city of Shrem. He comes whole, complete. And he does something of favor, of affection at the gate, at the entrance, the face of the city. And the rabbis say about that, what does it mean that he came whole? One of the things that means is that Shalom Begufo, that he had been injured in this midnight encounter, but now his limp was healed and his injury, the damage, was now healed. 
And then he does this thing of he shows favor and grace and affection to the city that he arrives in, whole, where he arrives and is healed. That's the back that's the backstory. That that Midrash actually appears in Midrash Rabbah Vayishlach immediately before the story of Rabbi Shimon provides the context. And it appears also in, in the Shvit, and we'll see it here in even our Shabbos Weimar in a second. Because the second time that Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Lazar come out of their cave, we see that Rabbi Lazar is still going and striking. But Rabbi Shimon comes out and he has a different approach now, a different mission. He's now a healer. Everywhere that his son strikes, he heals, he mends. That at the core of this story, the story of tragedy, decree, the story perhaps even that's taking place in the backdrop, backdrop of plague that wiped out 24,000 students, whether this very same moment or whether in the general imagination of Chazal in the same soul period of time, Rabbi Shimon being one of the students that emerged from the destruction of Rabbi Kibbutzin's Lagba Omer being the day where we celebrate Rabbi Shimon because it's the day, according to some, where no students die. Or it's the day, according to others, when the plague actually ended. Or it's the day, according to others, where Rabbi Shimon himself died and entered into the next world that becomes a time of celebration. His own death becomes a time of celebration. And a time when we celebrate the revelation of the teachings of Rabbi Shimon, which, which are embodied in the Zohar and the Sodot Torah, the secrets of Torah, all of these pieces, all these threads come together to portray a story of tragedy and healing. Maybe not complete healing, but to some degree, a degree of tikkun that emerges from all of this mayhem and destruction. We see even when he comes out, the destruction is continuing. His son is going and, 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 and striking the world around him. And Rabbi Shimon is going and fixing and healing. He says to his son, As if to say, the rest of the people, I'm going to keep protecting this world. I'm not going to destroy it, says Rabbi Shimon. But, but maybe it's just me and you who've got it right. You who see continue to see the world as a place that needs to be rebuked, reprimanded, attacked for the state that it's in. That you see a world that isn't fixed, and I somehow see a world that can be held together, redeemed, and healed. But you know what? It's just me and you. If it were just me and you, it would be enough. As Erev Shabbos comes around, they see Hahu Saba, that old man, that grandpa, who's running running between the suns, literally, is that time of day, of dusk, where we don't quite know it's a day, we don't quite know it's a night. The rabbis call this the time of the time that passes in the blink of an eye and nobody can stand upon it. It's a, it's a time that we all know is there, but it's happened so rapidly that none of us can stop and pause and, and, and give it different definitions. It's a time that is, that is, in essence, a time of safek, of uncertainty, of in-between. And they see a man running in that place. He's running on Erev Shabbos. We all know Erev Shabbos bin Ashmashot. There's, there's both great hope of the bliss of Shabbos that's entering, and there's great, there's great fear and trepidation. Is it already Shabbos? Is my work complete? Can I still be doing things that, that pertain to Chol, or do I already need a transition to Kedusha? I'm not sure where I am here. 
And here there's a man who's running. He's in a rush because he doesn't know where he belongs. Because Ben Hashemashot is a time where you're running. You're running because you can't stand on it. They see this man running and he's holding two Madane Asa, he's holding two myrtle branches. They say to him, this old man, why do you have these? He says, Shabbat, to honor Shabbat. They say to him, old man, one would have been enough. You want to bring a nice fragrance to your house? What's with the two branches? He says, one is to, to represent the mitzvah of remembering Shabbos, and one is to represent the mitzvah of guarding Shabbos, protecting and observing Shabbos, not violating Shabbos. Levi Shimon turns to his son and says, He says, Look how beloved the mitzvot are to Yisrael. And at that moment, his mind was put to rest. His mind was put to rest from that first perspective where he came out of the, the cave the second time. He came out of his own cave the second time. And his son was still striking the world, and he was saying, okay, let's at least not destroy anything, right? We were told, don't, don't come out here breaking, breaking my world. Let's not break anything. And he says to his son, you know, where all the world needs. The rest of these people, they don't, they don't get what's going on. And here where he sees this man running, running in a world of uncertainty, running between the suns, running in a world that you can't find a place to stand upon. And what he's holding in his hands as he's running are these two fragrant myrtle branches. It would have been enough to just have one, but for him it wouldn't have been enough. Because he doesn't know maybe what Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Elazar know in the way that they know. But what he does know, he wants to honor. What he does know, he wants to, to fully embrace. He's not trying to do a mitzvah. This isn't a mitzvah to fulfill. This is an expression of love, of chavivut, of affection. And it's that love and that affection that allows this old man to run against time, to race between the suns with, with these myrtle branches in his hand. And Rabbi Shimon understands something from him. Let's bear this in mind as we keep reading. Shama Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair was also a character of mythic status in, 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 in the Gemara and in the Zohar. He's Rabbi Shimon's father-in-law. He hears that Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Lazar have come out of the cave. He goes and he meets them in the hot baths where they go to, to heal their skin. You remember the, the Midrash Rabbah said explicitly that the carbs they ate made their skin hard like rust. Here all we know is that they ate these miraculous foods, but they were sitting in sand for 13 years. So here they were to heal their flesh, to heal their flesh, their skin. It's their flesh that needs healing now that they've reemerged. He sees that Rabbi Shimon has this cuts and scabs all over his body, and he starts crying. His father-in-law, Rabbi Yichas starts crying, and those tears fall onto the skin, the cracked skin of Rabbi Shimon, and they start to burn and hurt him. 
he says to his son-in-law, It so pains me to see you in this state. Rabbi Shimon says to him, It's your fortune. You are fortunate. You should be happy that you can see me in this state. For if you had never seen me in this state, you would have never found in me what I now contain, what I now possess. What does this mean? The Gemara explains that it used to be that when Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai would ask a kushia, he would ask a, a challenge, a question of something that just doesn't make sense. So what would happen with these kushiot in his learning? His father-in-law would literally would undo, would unbind all of these kushiot, all of these conundrums, all these questions. He would just untie them in 12 different ways. He would break them apart in 12 different ways. At the end, meaning at this point, after this whole period of time in the cave and everything he's gone through, when Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair would ask a kushia, when he was troubled by something, he asked a question, one of these contradictions that he noticed. Rabbi Shimon himself would undo, would unbind that question in 24 different ways. So that's Rabbi Shimon saying. That yes, you are pained over seeing me in this pained state, in this injured state. But Rabbi Shimon is saying, because of where I am right now, I'm now in a very different place. I used to have a kasha, I used to have a question in Torah, a question in the world, something I couldn't make sense of that didn't sit with me, that I didn't have the space for in my mind to understand that you would untie it in 12 different ways. But now, when you yourself have a question, I have 24 different ways to untie it. I just want to say, I don't quite know what to make of this, but it's very evocative to me that in the Gemara that speaks of the death of Rebekah's students, it actually doesn't say that he had 24,000 students. It says that he had 12,000 pairs of students. This is in the Gemara of Amalekson. He had 12,000 pairs of students, not 24,000. They existed in their pairs, and they bound in this to one another, and they were the ones who couldn't honor him. Rabbi Shimba Yochai in the story of his kashias and pirukim, the questions that bound him and the answers that untied his questions, he used to ask a question and his father-in-law gave him 12 untyings, undoings. Now his father-in-law would ask a question and he would untie it in 24 ways. Somehow this expansion went from the 12 to 24 in some kind of way, similarly, that the 12,000 pairs of students of Rabbi Akiva could not be 24,000 individuals who honored one another. But let's come back to the story. Rabbi Shimon says, Here's where the story really takes its, takes its, its direction. Since a miracle happened to me, I need to go fix something. I need to go fix something, because I experienced a miracle. Yaakov comes shalem, as we said, he comes whole. Rav explains he's whole in his body, he was healed. 
He's whole in his belongings and his possessions, and he's whole in his Torah. What does he do when he comes to the city of Shechem and he is Shalem and he is whole? He comes and he does some favor to the city. Rav explains, Yaakov created currency for them, a coin. He minted coins. Shmuel Amar Shvakim Tikenayim. He built markets for them. Rabbi Yochanan Amar Mechatzaot Tikenayim. He built them bathhouses. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do you remember how Rabbi Shimon got into trouble in the first place? Because the Chachamim were sitting around the Bay Midrash. And Rabbi Yehuda said, how beautiful the things that the Romans did. Remember, they built marketplaces. They built bridges. They built bathhouses. And Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon railed against them. He says it was all for their own purposes, to bring prostitutes into the city, to, to bedeck themselves in, these, in these, these bathhouses, and to take money from everybody. And here Rabbi Shimon is saying, I experienced a miracle. I need to fix something. And I need to fix something like Yaakov did when he was here. Yaakov built marketplaces. Yaakov built bathhouses. It's the same exact things that the Romans built. Those very same things that when Rabbi Shimon first heard of it, all he could say was that it was a terrible thing they were doing to oppress us and to impose their own values on us and to, to really just continue to live in their, their decrepit state. And here Rabbi Shimon himself goes through tragedy, exile, and healing. When he becomes whole again like Yaakov, he wants to learn from, from what Yaakov did. Yaakov built these very same things for that city. It's as if to say, Rabbi Shimon says, not only do I need to fix something for them, I need to fix something. It's not just that I need to do a favor for somebody else. I need to fix something for me. I used to look at this world with eyes that destroyed it. I looked at the Romans with eyes that said everything they do is, is, is unholy and unworthy. And now here I am, having gone through what I've gone through, something in me seeks to do the same things that they were doing, that I ridiculed them, the way that Yaakov Avinu did. After he fought with the great-grandfather of all, of Esau himself. And here, before we go on, I just want to begin to, to bring in here one of the large perspectives of the Zohar that runs throughout the Zohar, which is how we engage with that which is other to us, how we view that which opposes holiness, at least to our perception, that on some level, much of the Zohar, of the secrets of Torah, are looking to uncover the interaction between forces of holiness and forces that oppose or cover up holiness, or that make holiness imperceptible. My teacher, Zichonov Bechad, Rav Menachem Fulman, whenever he taught Zohar, he would always speak about the Zohar's push for us to engage with what's called the other side, the Sitra Achra, that which opposes holiness, that which opposes ourselves, that which we view and want to say is other. Because the Sod of Emuna, the Raz of Hemuta, the, the truth of a, of a divine reality, is that everything that exists, even or particularly these opposing forces, are all expressions 
of a single source. They all come from the divine. And our avodah, on, on some level, that, that runs throughout our, our, our spiritual work and our lives and our Torah living and mitzvot and, 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 and that which lives and exists beyond mitzvot is to engage with the world around us and to, to seek to uncover or contact the holiness, the divinity that, that lies within everything, even those realms that seem so other and so counter to the project of holiness. So here the Shimon emerges from his period first in the cave, to run away from the people who are pursuing him. Then once again, he has to enter into his own cave to run away from his own perspective that's destroying the world. That heaven says, get out of my world if you're here to destroy it. Go into your cave. There's something you need to fix in there. And Rabbi Shimon comes out and says, I need to fix something because this miracle that has happened to me. So he asks, what can I fix? What needs fixing? What needs healing? And they say to him that there's a place here where it's safek tuma. Once again, we enter into the realm of uncertainty of sfekot. There's a place here in, in our city where we don't know where it's tameh and where it's tahar. We don't know, is it pure or impure? All the priests, they can't walk through that, that, that area because they don't know, maybe... There's tum'ah there that we can't contact. Tumat mate, literally. There might be buried bodies there. That if we walk through there, we'd be violating the, the command of the Kohanim that's here in this, this week's parsha of Emor to, to not come into contact with death. The Midrash Rabbah shares is more explicit about this. The Midrash Rabbah says, Medrashrava says, all of the good that Tveria has done for us. We hid in the cave and we come to Tveria where the waters of Tveria healed our flesh, healed our earthly bodies, our earthly beings, taught us to live in this world with our pain, with our near-death experience, with our tragedy, and to be healed by its waters. The late Anan Medakan Yatan in Katolaya, we who escaped near death, we're not going to come and purify Tiveria from its dead ones, from its murdered ones, from the shmad, the decrees and, and oppression that we escaped from. How could we not purify the city from those who were caught, captured by that very same decree that we were lucky enough to, to emerge from? The birds that the hunter managed to catch. We were the bird who was let free, but there were many who were not, and they're buried somewhere in the city in unmarked territories. There's no gravesites. There's no stones. They were just thrown and thrust under the earth. How could we not purify this city, clean the streets of the city from all of that murder and death? Here in the Gemara and Babli, it's a fake tum'ah. Everywhere we walk here, we don't know. It might be impure. And there's Kohanim, there are people who are engaged in holy work who still are, are walking and breathing on this earth and, and they can't they can't cross this 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 patch of land. They need to know is this a place I can enter, is it a place that I can't? Where is the place that I can enter in the field of death? Where is the ground that the Kohanim, that those who are connected to Kedusha and to seeking a life of purity, how can they make their way, weave their way through a field 
of death through this world that everywhere we turn is safek tumah. There might be death, there might be life, and we don't know. Listening here to the echoes between the words of the Gemara, to the to the white white paper, <laughs> that's the white fire of of, of, of the Talmud Bavli, of the Medrash Rabbah. So Yerushalayim asks, "Ika inish Does anybody know that this field, this place, once was a place of purity? Hahu sava. That grandpa comes along. Is it the same one? Is it a different one? I don't know. There's a Tosfot, by the way. Not here, elsewhere. A Tosfot said, quotes an opinion Tosfot doesn't agree with. And not even in this story, but I have to say it. There's an opinion in, that the Tosfot quotes that every time the Gemara says, Hahu Saba, that grandfather, the grandfather with a capital G, we're talking about Eliyahu Navi. Here, the grandpa answers, there was a place right here in this field that Ben Zakai, Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakai, used to cut turmusim. It's a kind of kind of bean, kind of legume. It still grows here in Israel. It used to cut truma. So it, it was a place of Tyra because the truma was the 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 gifts, the contributions that were brought to the Beit Mikdash. You remember, by the way, the two reasons brought in the Gemara earlier, why Askara, the theory of this inner suffocation comes to the world. One is about Ma'asrot and one is about Lashon Hara. Here's a story about the damages of Lashon Hara, of Yehuda ben Gerim who goes and, and tells the Roman authorities about the thing that Rabbi Shimon said and that Rabbi Yehuda said about them and that Rabbi Yossi said about them, goes and spreads these damaging words, damaged reputations, damaged lives. And we have a story here that evokes the Ma'asrot, those tithes, those contributions to the Mikdash. This is the place, this is the field that Ben Zaka used to cut to a Musim that he was going to, to dedicate to the Mikdash, to the Holy. So here there's different versions of the story. Here, one version is that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai walks through the field and everywhere he touches the ground that's hard, tahare, everywhere that the earth is, is, is packed, is firm, he says, he pronounces it as a place that's tahor. And everywhere that it's rafi, that the, that the ground is soft, he says, he marks it. And he says, this either might be, or is most probably, or is certainly <laughs> a place of tumah. This is a place to stay away from. Ostensibly, the hard earth and the soft earth has to do with whether or not there was a body buried there in recent years. If there had been, been a an earth that was dug up, it would be softer. If there had been earth that was standing solid for years and years and years on end, so we could we could we can mark it as a place that wasn't wasn't a grave, wasn't a burial place. And that is the place after doing this throughout the field that the Huhu Saba calls out Tiher Ben Yochai Beta Kvarot, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai has purified the Beta Kvarot, which itself is such a astounding statement. Because you can't metahar beta kvarot. It is impossible to purify a burial field, a cemetery. And here, Hahu Saba, that grandpa, that old man, sees this action and says, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, has metahar beta kvarot. Now, I want to share with you another version of, of what Rabbi Shimon does here. The other version that Rabbi Shimon does is that he himself goes and he starts to cut clippings of Tumusim. He starts to cut legumes. And he casts them into the ground all over 
the shuk of Tveria, all over the streets of Tveria. And wherever the Tormus took hold and started to grow, he said, ah, here a body is buried. And wherever they didn't grow any higher, he said, here a body is not buried. So here is the place of the Kohanim. Again, he marked the path through the shuk of Tveria, through the death, death fields of Tveria to offer a path, a pathway through. And there's another kind of fascinating thing that's happening here where Rabbi Shimon is relating to life and death in a very peculiar way. Where the earth is firm, it's a place where there isn't death. Where it's soft, there is there is a body there. Or in the Midrash Rabbah, it's even more powerful. The place where there is not death is a place that won't grow these clippings of Tormusim, these lupine cuttings. But a place where the lupine grows is a place where, where a dead body lies. I told the story to my, to my kids today, to my, to my daughters, six and eight, and I asked them, what do you think, what was, he, what was he noticing there? So one daughter said, because if the body is decomposing there, so it creates compost, so it makes the, the plant grow. And my other daughter said, it's like the soul. If the soul, maybe it leaves the body, but then the soul gives life to the plant and allows the plant. That's like it's, it's olam haba, she said. <laughs> I told them, I think they're both right. I think they're both saying the same thing in, in, in different words with different perspectives. Part of what Rishon Bar Yochai is doing here is identifying not only what is a place of death, as a place to stay away from. But he's also in the very same moment identifying the life that continues beyond death. The life that can emerge from death and live on after death. And here too, I just want to come back to Rabbi Shimon himself as the, the figure who emerges from the destruction of all of Rabbi Akiva's students, of all of the plague and the tragedy, of even the tragedy that befell him himself when he had to hide in the cave and, and live in the dirt for, for 12 years and then 13 years and wanted to destroy the world himself. And he comes out on the other end and he realizes that my near death is here to birth life. My experience is here to teach me that the only job left for me is to cleanse the streets of Tiberium. And not only to do that by being in opposition to them, by telling them what they're doing is wrong, but to do it by joining with them. To do, to learn from Yaakov, who did the kinds of things that the Romans themselves did, building bathhouses, building markets. I'm going to go to the market and I'm going to show that amidst the place of Suffolk Tuma, in the place where everywhere I turn it might be impure, I'm going to find the path that can walk through that, of that can I can say with certainty is Tahor. And in the very same moment, I'm going to show that all those places of Tuma also themselves are somehow places of growth. That there is no such thing in this world for which evil is an end point, for which the opposition to life is total or final. The Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai himself becomes the one whose death is a day of celebration, whose death date is the day on which the plague ended, is the day in which we say that somehow amidst all of that chaos and loss and, and the grief, there is a hope 
and a learning and an understanding that emerged from from within all of it, from amidst all of it, it doesn't mean that that, that that tragedy didn't happen. It doesn't mean that that tragedy is any less tragic. It means, gam v'gam, elu ve'elu divayim chayim. That happened and this happened. And they happened somehow in some mysterious way together. The way Rabbi Shimon emerges is that he emerges with a sense of the chavirut that is possible in this world, that is possible in the world that is God's world. That, again, to come back to the core, perhaps hidden secret teaching of Rabbi Akiva that, that he says is, is really the principle of all the words of Torah, that beneath all of it is love, is the ability to, to feel love for another and to express it, the ability to see another as one worthy of cover, one worthy of honor, and prefer others to be beloved in our eyes, for real. <laughs> Not to fake it, but to hold a perspective that can, can really see that. Rabbi Shimon, the first time he comes out, he doesn't see that. And even the second time he comes out, he doesn't completely see it. He's still just fixing broken things until he realizes, there's something beyond mitzvah as something you're either doing right or wrong. There's something beyond people's ability to prevail over this world or to fail in this world. People who are running in Ben Ashmashot, they have chavivut. There is a love that pervades. There is a love that can pervade her being. And that love is more valuable on some level than all of the rights and wrongs, all of the sveikot. Do we get it right? Do we get it wrong? If it's driven by love, there's a chance to truly bring tikkun. There's a chance to truly be healing. And when we come into the Zohar, into the world of the Zohar, into the beginning of the Ijarabah, for example, that, that great gathering where we Shimon students where he's ready to reveal the secrets of Torah to them and, and the, the heavens are shuddering and, the, and they hear the flapping of wings and these, these awesome sounds where Shimon says, I'm not afraid. I feel the earth quaking and I'm not afraid. We say that really, when it comes down to it, everything hangs on chavivut and belovedness and affection. This world, with all of its challenge and its difficulties, is, is the place in which we can learn affection. To delve into the secrets of God is to uncover the love that lies beneath everything, that lies at the core of everything, that lies beneath fear, that lies in healing, that is the healing that's even there when we're crying our tears of pain, over my cracked skin, he says to me, can you even imagine, he says to his father, what I, what I now know in my state that I didn't know before. And through the cracks of my own flesh, I've come to learn a kind of love that can untie the binds of all the kashias, of all of those stuck places that don't let me move forward. Where he says, I've learned through my own flesh the love and the freedom that exists beyond all of that. I learned that from sitting in the sand to be wrong. I learned that from coming out and failing to be helpful. But ultimately, healing my own perspective and being able to heal as well.
So this is the backstory. This is the beginning. Where we go from here is closer and closer. Not to Rabbi Shimon's cave, but to his emergence, to the teaching that came out, that came after. As we approach Lagba Omer, we'll continue to look more deeply into the light, the aura of Rabbi Shimon, namely the aura of Torah. And, 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 and truly, all the Siddur to Torah, you read all the works in the Kupalim and Chazidosh Sfarim, but what it comes down to is that at the core, the secret of Torah is, is the Torah Ha'adim. Is to be to behold and to begin to perceive even beyond our perception the Torah that exists and expresses itself through the life of every single one of us. This is the Torah that can redeem that great grief, that great loss of what we keep us doing. The Torah that can teach us to truly honor our lives and as part of that. Honoring each other's lives and life itself. Many of these recordings are from Rabbi Ami's ongoing weekly classes given at Yeshivat Sharei Shalom in Jerusalem. For more information, go to shalom.org.il forward slash about. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Rav Daniel Kohn. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.